0: This is the Mini-Culture Podcast, Season 5 from KFAI Community Radio in the Twin Cities.
1: It was a tool to
2: basically cheat Native Americans out of their land.
0: Chairs uh, you can pick up and throw in a fight.
2: In my head, the FBI wanted to know if I was a communist.
0: This season, stories about Minnesota history. I'm your host, Ahanti Young. In July 1981, the New York Times published an article about a mysterious illness plaguing gay men in New York City. After reading the article, Bruce Brockway, a gay activist and publisher of the Twin Cities' first LGBTQ newspaper, turned to his partner and said, I think I have that. That was AIDS, and Bruce was right. Numbers-wise, Minnesota was never a hot zone for infection. But for Minnesotans living with HIV-AIDS, the struggles were the same. To stay alive, and to fight the homophobia that wanted to ignore an epidemic dismissed as a gay man's disease. This is their story. Generation AIDS. Minnesota's HIV-AIDS crisis 1981 through 1986 Reported and narrated by KFAI's Brit Ahmet. Walkman, you really feel the
2: music with the
3: Sony Walkman.
1: The Sony Walkman.
3: To do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. Scientists at the
1: National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer.
4: Who was Bruce Brockway? A friend would later say of him that he was a charcoal starter, the starter fluid whose only job was to get the fire burning and maybe occasionally jump back in and stoke the embers. Bruce published the Twin Cities' first LGBT newspaper in 1978, went at it hard for two years, then went on to something else. He organized the Twin Cities Gay Cuban Task Force to resettle gay Cubans who'd come over on the Marielle Boatlift of 1980, seeking asylum, in Minneapolis. That done, he poured himself into his piano playing, He was a classically trained pianist, and his dream was to introduce American audiences to the works of Russian composer Scriabin with a national concert tour. Bruce never went on that tour. He never had the opportunity to get it out of his system and move on to something else, start a new fire. Because July 1981, he and his lover, René Valdez, One of the gay cubans who'd resettled in minneapolis took a trip to chicago it was a year that month that they'd met maybe that anniversary passed through their minds and they were in the mood to celebrate or maybe it was just another adventure in a jam-packed year of adventures they had the photo albums to prove it each posing for the other sometimes against the same lamppost or on the same beach with the Franklin Avenue Bridge in the distance. And they were something to look at, both of them. One of Renee's Cuban friends said Bruce looked like a Viking god with his wild blonde curls and mustache. And Renee, now that he was in America, was always being stopped and told he looked just like Burt Reynolds. They were the kind of men people wanted to meet. Bruce was intense and intellectually stimulating. Renee was so curious about people. When you met him, he made you feel like you were the most attractive, interesting person he'd ever met. They probably went to Chicago for the same reason a lot of people travel, to get away from the grind. Bruce worked as a switchman at Burlington Northern Railroad. The job was okay, but it came with a lot of downtime, which Bruce used to read books, newspapers, magazines, anything he could get his hands on. Six months after Rene arrived in Minneapolis, he landed a job at Control Data, bringing his talents with communications and with languages, he was multilingual, to the computer industry, just as the home computer revolution was launching. Chicago has no significance to this story. It's just where Bruce and Renee were when Bruce picked up the latest issue of the New York Times, which was in their hotel room. Being the voracious reader he was, he flipped through the Times, and there it was. The tiniest little article about something so cataclysmic that by 2017, it would claim 35 million lives. Of course, nobody knew that then. And the headline was so puzzling Rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. The gay men had gotten the cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma, because their immune systems were broken. But there was no word on what had broken their immune systems or why it was singling out gay men. What Bruce said next would stay with Renee the rest of his life, along with so much else. He turned to Renee and said, I think I have that.
3: Many victims get a rare form of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. Others get an infection known as pneumocystis pneumonia. Researchers know of 413 people who have contracted the condition in the past year. One third have
2: died and none have been cured.
4: The AIDS crisis in Minnesota began in 1981, the same time that it began in the hot zones, New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Miami. Numbers-wise, Minnesota didn't compare. When New York City had hundreds of cases, the entire state of Minnesota had a handful. But for the Minnesotans living with AIDS, the struggles were the same a mysterious disease that almost always ended in death, and homophobia. Homophobia because in America, the disease initially took root among gay men, though it wasn't a gay disease. Even if some insisted on labeling it the gay plague or grid, gay-related immune deficiency, it was a sexually transmitted disease that spread through intimate contact and blood. HIV, HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, wasn't looking for gay men. It was looking for opportunity to spread through unprotected sex, dirty needles, and before screening for HIV, through tainted blood products like the factor eight used by hemophiliacs. Today, some 37 million people worldwide are living with HIV. As of December 31st, 2017, 8,789 persons in Minnesota were living with HIV AIDS. And so the epidemic continues. But this story of the AIDS crisis in Minnesota ends in 1996 with the introduction of the drug cocktail that transformed HIV from a death sentence to a chronic disease. And it begins in 1981 with Bruce Brockway.
5: Bruce was born January twenty eighth, 1947, and died on August twenty eighth, in 1984. As far as I know, he lived his entire life in the Twin Cities. I never met him.
4: Alan Lessig never met Bruce Brockway, but he was partners with Rene Valdez from 2000 until Rene's death in 2012.
5: What I have is some stories that Rene told me verbally about Bruce's life. I have some memories of Bruce that Renee actually wrote down, and I have a whole series of pictures. There's all sorts of pictures of him and Renee walking down the Nicolet Mall, walking in the Como Park Conservatory, some pictures in front of the Minneapolis Public Library. I think there's one from what was called the IDS building from the from the viewpoint on top of the IDS building. Late 70s, 80s clothing, you know, bell-bottom jeans, very tight shirts.
4: When Rene arrived in Miami from Cuba, he was immediately flown to Wisconsin and held in a detainment camp there. Days later, Bruce arrived with members of his task force to meet with the gays among the thousands of Cubans being held there. When Bruce and Rene locked eyes, something happened.
5: As soon as they saw each other in their camp, they were immediately attracted to each other.
4: So much so that within days of arriving in Minneapolis, Renee was moving into Bruce's house, the one with the big windows and the Petroff Grand Piano at its heart.
5: He was, in a way, a perfect match for Renee. He was absolutely curious about things, read vociferously was kind of up-to-date on all the movements, everything that was happening. He was reading political books. For a long time, he was kind of a libertarian and was always just aware of everything that was going on. You know, had subscriptions to the Minneapolis paper, the New York Times, you know, Time Magazine, was always reading and, and talking and, and getting involved with politics.
4: In Cuba, gays were persecuted put in prison or in labor camps. That's why Rene had left. The America wasn't exactly friendly to gay men, Bruce and his friends carved out their own world in Minneapolis.
5: Bruce, having you know, lived in the Twin Cities, grown up in the Twin Cities, was part of the fabric of the gay community, helped create the gay community in many ways, and was very, very open about his sexuality, very open about his identity.
4: Rene was more cautious.
5: Rene had already learned from the moment he came to the United States that he might have to hide his identity again. On one hand, he was, you know, the the friend and lover of this this really very out gay activist. On the other hand, he always had to worry about how out can he be, you know, in this life in the U.S. And that was something that he, it took many, many years for him to sort through because again, he had to worry about becoming a citizen, he had worried about finding a job. Drug addicts get AIDS from blood contaminated needles, children from their
1: mother's blood in the womb. Others have gotten it from blood transfusions and blood products. But more than 70% of the victims are homosexual men who get it from sexual contact.
4: By the time Bruce read the New York Times article, he'd been experiencing odd symptoms for a while. A year before, Doctors had thought his swollen lymph nodes indicated cancer. And lately, he'd been so bizarrely tired. He didn't have the purple skin lesions, the Kaposi sarcoma described in the Times story. But some of the other side effects of a busted immune system felt chillingly familiar. Even the medical community had only heard about the new epidemic a month before the New York Times article. They were as much in the dark as everyone else. But Bruce was sure he had this bug or whatever it was. He went to doctors. They could tell something was wrong, but they didn't know why. Finally, Bruce was hospitalized at the University of Minnesota hospitals. Dr. Frank Rame saw Bruce for the first time around September of that year.
3: Some hematologists actually were seeing him because he was anemic. We recognize now that anemia is something that happens when HIV becomes advanced.
4: Dr. Rame had been hired by the hospital in 1979 to run the Infection Control Program. His specialty was infectious disease.
3: He was in the hospital to try to evaluate his anemia and his pancytopenia. He had other blood cell lines that were decreased in number as well. And so he was admitted to try to evaluate him, and the the hematologist asked me to come by and see him to see if there was any infectious disease explanation. And he was hugely gay. I mean, this was my first introduction to the gay world, and he had a picture of his boyfriend in in chaps with his butt hanging out on his hospital bedside table. And so it was pretty clear that this was going to be a new world.
4: Bruce may have thought he had this disease, but there was a problem for him and Dr. Rame because there was no test for AIDS. There wouldn't be a test until after the virus that caused it, the human immunodeficiency virus, was discovered in 1983, two years in the future. The men who had been described with this disease had presented with opportunistic infections, Kaposi, sarcoma, and pneumocystis pneumonia. Bruce didn't, but what he did have was a failing immune system
3: it seemed like he could be one of these cases.
1: Would you state your full name for the record? Bruce Brockway. And what is your home address? It was August
4: 27, 1982, and Bruce was being interviewed by the defense lawyer of one of his friends, Leonard Richards.
1: Mr. Brockway, you understand that the purpose for our taking this statement is to determine what, if any, uh, knowledge uh, you might have Relative to the uh, death of Mae Wilson, is that your understanding? Yes.
4: And who was Mae? Around the date of the murder, Bruce had dropped by his friend's house. Leonard had bankrolled Bruce's first you know, newspaper, The Northland Companion, which Bruce eventually replaced with his second newspaper, Positively Gay. Now that same friend was accused of murdering his disabled sister for her insurance money. Bruce actually didn't have much to tell the lawyer. Still, the lawyer wanted to get Bruce's testimony now rather than later.
1: Now, it's my understanding that you have an illness which may or may not result in you're not being alive at some point in the future, is that correct? Right. And would you describe for the record uh, what the nature of that illness is, what its symptoms are, and uh, how your death might possibly result from this illness.
2: It's called uh, an acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which means that my immune system, which fights disease, fungus, bacteria, uh, is uh, operating under par, and uh, that uh, I'm I can catch uh, many different kinds of infections. The Uh, There's been, I think, about 50% mortality rate, eventual mortality rate.
1: When did you first learn that you have this disease?
2: This spring. There's no cure right now. They don't even really know what causes it. All they know is that it seems to be contagious uh, in in some ways, and uh, uh, the only thing they do is treat symptoms as they appear like pneumonia, uh, a harsh reaction to a cold or anything like that. <clears throat> I'm on antibiotics uh, uh, for as long as I have to be, which apparently means until they have a, some sort
0: of a breakthrough in investigating the disease. You're listening to Generation AIDS, Minnesota's HIV-AIDS crisis on the Mini Culture Podcast.
2: Support for the MiniCulture Podcast on KFAI comes from Hennepin History Museum, where you can learn about your community through the stories of people, places, and things from our past. Located in Minneapolis, Hennepin History Museum serves as a bridge from our complex past to our unknown future by bringing the diverse histories of our region to life. The museum helps our community understand the world through exhibits, collections, public programs, a magazine, and a research library. Learn more about member-supported Hennepin History Museum at hennepinhistory.org.
0: Now back to Generation AIDS, Minnesota's HIV-AIDS crisis. Brit Ahmed takes us back to the early 1980s.
4: Deborah Strege was a University of Minnesota journalism student. One day in the spring of 1983, she knocked on the door of a fine old white home on Girard Avenue in Minneapolis. Bruce Brockway was home, and it was that time of day when light slanted through the big windows and pooled on the floor, Did she want some tea? Bruce asked her. Yeah, she did. He went to the kitchen and brought back some tea. Then they sat down and began the interview. Bruce told Deborah that he'd finally been diagnosed with AIDS June of 1982, making him the first diagnosed case of AIDS in Minnesota. Immediately, gay men started seeking him out, calling him, showing up at his house. They wanted to tell him about symptoms they were having. And did he think they had AIDS? To Deborah Strege, the student journalist who'd come to interview Minnesota's first diagnosed case, Bruce wondered aloud why more journalists weren't interviewing him. He'd only been interviewed once by the Twin Cities Weekly City Pages. He figured the press was taking its cue from the New York Times, which had run that one article and not much sense. If the newspaper of record didn't think AIDS was a big deal, why should they? Deborah Strigge's interview with Bruce appeared in the March 21, 1983 issue of the GLC Voice, the successor to Bruce's own newspapers. Beneath the headline, 1,100-plus dying with AIDS, press coverage remains sparse, were two photographs, the first of Bruce and the second of another Minnesota man, who, according to the editor's note, had just been diagnosed with AIDS as the paper was going to press. of
2: the AIDS epidemic is causing a decrease in blood supplies in a number of cities. A Red Cross spokesman says a misconception that AIDS can be contracted by giving blood may force the cancellation of elective surgery in Pennsylvania and New York unless blood supplies increase.
4: That second Minnesota man was William Runyon better known as Bill, Billy, or Mr. Gay 90s of 1981, a title bestowed by the Minneapolis bar of the same name. Billy Runyon, Minnesota's fifth case, was diagnosed like Bruce by Dr. Frank Rame at the University of Minnesota Hospitals.
3: So Billy was a delightful, delightful guy. He He was a sweetheart.
4: Billy liked being in a crowd. He liked late nights and a lit cigarette And drinks with friends. He liked antiques. He liked bodybuilding, which had given him an impressive physique that was once captured unforgettably in a photo of him astride a white horse naked. Perhaps it was instead a white pony, because what you noticed as you stood shoulder-to-shoulder with Billy was how short he was, for all his muscle. He was short, with an absolutely magnificent mustache, the kind with the curling tips that belonged on an old-time baseball player. When Billy walked in a room, heads turned. HIV-AIDS, a sexually transmitted infection, wasn't just showing up in gay men. And that, even, was a misnomer. Gay men was a catch-all for gay men, bisexual men, and straight men who had sex with other men. A group that by the 1990s would be referred to as men who have sex with men (MSMs), a designation that more accurately conveyed how they were getting infected rather than who they were.
3: So HIV, roughly speaking, it transmits about one in a hundred sexual events. That's not very much. But if you're active enough over a year, you you, you can get it, yeah. Yeah. and and the, the the more sexually active people got it first, so that's that's perverse in in some ways because there, are, I, I know more than a few people who look, who look like they have very modest sexual exposure but who got HIV they just got unlucky, and other people who had a prodigious amount of sexual exposure and and never got it, uh, but but these are averages we're talking about are tendencies and and I think. People who were the most sexually active tended to be the ones who got
4: it first. Other groups at risk for infection were IV drug users, recipients of blood transfusions, and babies born to HIV-infected mothers. Little by little, it was sinking in that this deadly virus wasn't restricting itself to gay men in New York. And that only added to the atmosphere of fear and hysteria and blame the emergency room at the Hennepin County Medical Center, received a phone call from a woman who wanted to know if she could catch AIDS by sharing a dance floor with a gay man. Minnesota's first death from AIDS occurred October 1982, the 2nd, May 1983. Medical examiners were afraid to touch their bodies. In February 1983, the St. Paul Pioneer Press-Dispatch printed some of the more outlandish transmission theories. That AIDS was the result of poor hygiene and could be transmitted through improper food handling. That AIDS was biological warfare run amok. That AIDS was a CIA plot to kill gays.
3: Transmission required either sharing blood or intimate sexual contact, and that was pretty clear from the beginning. There's no reason why it would be only gay men. If a mosquito could transmit it or a door handle could transmit it or a... A hug could transmit it. It just wouldn't be as confined to risk groups as it was.
4: So, almost at the same moment, Billy learned he had AIDS. His photo was appearing on the front page of a newspaper next to the word AIDS. And almost at the same time as that, he was swept into the orbit of that most active of Minnesota's gay activists, Bruce Brockway, Alan Lessig.
5: Because he was Bruce, <laughs> And he was essentially the first person in Minnesota to be diagnosed with AIDS. What he did was, he did what he always did, was, how do I organize?
4: Bruce, Billy, and a handful of committed gay men formed the Minnesota AIDS Project. With a public forum, they premiered their organization at Mount Sinai Hospital. Bruce, who'd been living with his diagnosis for a year, led the meeting. But Billy was also in the spotlight. They were men with AIDS. And some of the people in the room had never seen one of them up close. John White, a young gay doctor who would soon devote a large chunk of his career to HIV-AIDS, fell into that group. Over a decade later, he would recall for an interviewer that weird charge that seemed to surround Bruce and Billy. He said... They were stigmatized. They were homosexuals with this homosexual disease. I was very aware that they were singled out. They were different. There was just a sense of awe, almost, just looking at them and soaking it up. These were people with this entity, which was now being described all over the country, and which we knew was going to be something huge, and that they were going to die, That was a phenomenal realization.
0: AIDS is not God's vengeance upon the homosexual community.
4: At
2: New York St. John the Divine, the Reverend Paul Moore pleaded for reason. So while
4: gay marchers were appealing for liberation, they were also appealing for compassion. The Minnesota AIDS Project, MAP, based its organization on New York's gay men's health crisis which ran notices in local Twin Cities gay newspapers with a hotline number. Like its New York precursor, MAP collected a list of resources, up-to-date information on AIDS research and opportunistic infections, the names of good doctors, dentists, and morticians who were willing to work with people living with AIDS. MAP had a walk-in support group, and it sponsored a speakers bureau, which was available to give talks to groups interested in learning about the epidemic. Bruce Rockway was one of the most vocal and prominent speakers on AIDS. He spoke to festival goers at that summer's Gay Pride Festival.
2: Billy Runyon right now is in the hospital, fighting off an infection, a very serious infection, and we wish him well today. If if any of your friends start coming down with AIDS or AIDS-like manifestations, Give them your support. Don't, uh, don't desert them like some empty-minded disco queen, huh?
4: In July, MAP hosted a fundraiser with the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus. Later in the year, Twin Cities Public Television broadcast Minnesota's first documentary on the epidemic, and it featured interviews with Bruce, Billy, and Dr. Frank Rame. After the broadcast, the three men appeared live in a television studio and took calls from viewers. By the end of 1983, Minnesota had nine documented cases of HIV-AIDS. AIDS as a disease was worse than you could imagine. Because HIV broke your immune system, you were at the mercy of the environment. Bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and viruses. There were over 20 opportunistic infections that became associated with AIDS. They affected every part of your body from the top of your head to the tips of your toes. AIDS offered several ways to go blind and to lose your mind. Your lymph nodes swelled. At night, you drowned in your own sweat. That white coating on your tongue, in your mouth, in your throat, oral thrush, made every bite of food feel like you were swallowing glass. Sometimes you couldn't leave the house because of chronic diarrhea. Then your lungs filled with fluid, and every breath was a struggle. Wounds refused to heal. The purple lesions of Kappa C sarcoma proliferated on your back and your arms and your face. Lesions swelled over your eyelids. They ballooned in your throat. Your joints ached. Your head ached. You lost your balance. You couldn't eat and shriveled to skin and bone. In your 30s, you looked like a 70-year-old man and probably had less time to live. Every person's experience with AIDS was different, and more often than not, that experience ended in death. A month after Bruce's diagnosis in June 1982, he was hospitalized with a 104 degree temperature. The next month, he was hospitalized again with cryptococcus and extreme fatigue. And just as he was regaining his strength, cytomegalovirus struck. Then he stabilized. For a large portion of 1983, as he was stoking the fires of the Minnesota AIDS Project, Bruce felt okay. He put on weight. He had more energy. When he wasn't giving interviews, attending MAP meetings, or making calls to ask favors, he was tracking down the latest HIV AIDS news and tapping out articles, just like the old days when he ran his paper. He was keenly interested in treatment options, As a man suffering from AIDS who wanted to live, he had a personal stake. He also followed AIDS funding. In 1983, Congress appropriated an additional $12 million for AIDS research, bringing the total to 26 million. Bruce wasn't impressed with either Congress's hesitant not enough funding or the Center for Disease Control's bungled, in his opinion, response to the crisis. Was no word if Bruce still had his job at Burlington Northern. Even when an employer wasn't scared off by your disease, the nature of AIDS made it difficult to hold down a job. Bruce continued with his piano practice, three to four hours a day when he could manage it, down from six to eight hours a day. After all, American audiences were waiting for his skriabin tour, even if they didn't know it yet. But even here, AIDS interfered. A sore was growing on the tip of Bruce's finger. He went to see Dr. Frank Rame.
3: So, if you got a paronychia, you'd cure it in in a week, just like you would cure a cold sore in a week. But his just ate away the tip of his finger, and I could not figure out what the hell it was. He's got a finger that's rotting off. You know, I've never seen anything like that before. This went on for a month before I figured out that we might tr- it might be herpes, and we should try. A drug against her piece and uh, cured in a couple of days.
4: Renee Valdez still living the life of an active, healthy adult, working at Control Data, going to the gym, checking up on his immigration status. At home, Rene and Bruce sometimes came together around the piano. Bruce had taught him how to play Brahms lullaby and Fur Elise. Among Rene's papers, Alan Lessick found a charming anecdote about Bruce and Rene's interrupted piano lessons
5: There was a squirrel that would come into their house and the squirrel would like come to the piano and jump on the keyboard of the piano and they would feed the squirrel mother squirrel nuts.
4: By the end of 1983, Bruce's health took a turn for the worse. But at the time, neither he nor Renee recognized it for what it was. Bruce just suddenly turned moody. Rene thought he was mad at him because they'd been quarreling. But then it became clear that wasn't it. Bruce had an AIDS-related brain lymphoma, which altered his personality. February 1984, he was hospitalized. Radiation shrunk the lymphoma, but only temporarily.
5: Towards the end of Bruce's life, he had dementia, and so it was a... Really huge challenge for Renee to live with a lover who went from this you know active intellectual, beautiful, handsome, very sexual man to to a man who was literally wasting away before his eyes, and then eventually his his mind started going, and he would not necessarily recognize Renee all the time or when he did, he would he would yell at him. Um, so it was very difficult, and that's something that Rene carried with him for the rest of his life. He was always worried about his mind going.
4: In September, the GLC Voice ran the headline, Bruce Brockway, pianist, sire of gay press, police reporter, friend of refugees, died of AIDS. Bruce died August 28, 1984.
1: He was 37. Bill Runyon of Minneapolis is an AIDS sufferer who says while many gays have changed their lifestyle, many have not.
2: A lot of lot of denial and a lot of the same behavior. Uh, people aren't as uh, health conscious as they ought to be.
4: With Bruce gone, Billy Runyon became the face of Minnesota HIV/AIDS. The go-to guy for quotes and the soundbite for the evening news. It was a role perfectly suited for the former Mr. Gay '90s. Billy was seriously photogenic and disarmingly open.
2: Of course, there's always that thing in the back of your mind that you try to push out all the time that says, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, and that keeps me from being as motivated sometimes as I should be to do things other than
3: self-destructive things.
4: Billy had always been an affectionate soul. When he met friends at the bar, he liked to kiss them hello. That had ended. He just couldn't risk picking up germs. And perhaps for the recipients too, those kisses didn't feel as safe as they used to. In Vietnam, Billy had been a physician's assistant in the army. He translated that military experience into a civilian career in the medical field with the occasional gig waiting tables and bartending. Before his diagnosis, he'd been working at a Minneapolis blood plasma center. But as soon as his employers found out he had AIDS, they fired him. The Lambda Legal Defense Fund took up Billy's case, and the employers settled out of court for $15,000.
2: I'm a good bartender and a good waiter, but people will not hire me because they're afraid the public will find out that I have AIDS and, and um, quit eating there or quit drinking there.
4: Sometime back, Billy had made up his mind to get away for a while from the city and his identity as the AIDS guy. He wanted something simple. To be Billy again. Fun loving Billy. Desirable Billy. Billy with the marvelous mustache. So he went to Chicago and to a gay bar he liked. And he picked up a guy and had a fling. But even in Chicago, Billy couldn't escape it. Someone had seen his picture in a Minneapolis newspaper and told the fling about it. Back home, Billy recounted this incident for a TV reporter and was hit by a firestorm of criticism. Billy may have been practicing safe sex. It never came up in the interview. But the idea that someone with AIDS was having sex, that just wasn't acceptable. He could have at least told the fling he had AIDS. But then that was a thing Billy had gone to Chicago to avoid. By 1985, he wasn't doing so many interviews, The Minnesota AIDS Project had an executive director now and paid staff. They could do interviews. There was a new organization in town, the Aliveness Project. By March 1986, Minnesota had 42 confirmed AIDS cases. They could do interviews. Meanwhile, Billy had to use the fingers of both hands to count the number of times he'd been hospitalized. He told Dr. Rame an anecdote. So this one night, he went to a bar with a friend, something he'd done thousands of times. But this particular night, he walked into the bar, and a guy recognized him and stood up and said, Billy, you're alive. Apparently, Billy's retreat from the spotlight had convinced everyone that he died. March 1986, the Minnesota AIDS Project announced it was going to hold a Bill Runyon's day for AIDS awareness at three Minneapolis gay bars to honor one of its co-founders and to also screen its new safe sex video, On the Safe Side. But at that very moment, Billy was in the hospital again, and this time plotting to sneak booze and ciggies past the nurses, he told the editor of the GLC Voice. He was just being his old cheerful self again, after three days of hovering in a semi-coma. He was in agony with joint pain, and doctors had found a lesion on his lung. But he said he was gonna make it to Bill Runyon's Day for AIDS Awareness. That was his goal, which he couldn't keep. March 9th, the day of the event, he was too sick to even get out of bed. So Dr. Rame and Billy's nurses went in his place. After the video screened at the saloon bar, Dr. Rame stood up and offered a few words. He said, if you want to give meaning to what Bill Runyon has done, stay uninfected. Billy died four days later, seven days shy of his 39th birthday.
0: You just heard Generation AIDS, Minnesota's HIV AIDS Crisis 1981 to 1986, produced by Brit Arment. Listen to Part 2, 1986 to 1991. Find it at kfai.org/documentaries. Support for the Mini Culture Podcast comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Support also comes from the Hennepin History Museum. Music from Blue Dot Sessions at the Free Music Archive. The Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI is edited by Melissa Olson and Ryan Dawes. Until next time, I'm Ahanti Young. Peace.